You are listening to the Twibbly Podcast, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. Comedy podcast looking back at This Week in History. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Podbean, or wherever you like to get your podcasts from. You can find us and or message us over on Facebook and Instagram using TWWWBLY. Hey, welcome back to Twibbly, or this week was way better last year. My name is Bill with one L. With me, as always, he smears. Men smear. It's Jeff McLarge huge. I sneer. I sneer. I sneer and I sneer from far. Hey, man. I don't, know, I, don't know if you have, I don't know if you have neighbors that do construction. Do you have neighbors that do construction, Bill? I have a neighborhood that is... <laughs> It's like the, the the Burger King Kids Club of neighborhoods of, of crazy because I like we've established this many times on the show that all my neighbors think I'm insane, yes. but my my neighbors on the uh, on the west side of me, that house there must be some like weird prerequisite over there that you have to just be I don't know the the people that lived there before we used to call them the vampires because <laughs> you would never see them at night I mean you would never see them during the day ever. Like my girlfriend, never see them at night. They're probably not vampires. Yeah, like at night. Oh yeah, they would all come out and they'd be out in their backyard and stuff like that. They, like the guy would mow his lawn at like eight thirty at night. And my right. girlfriend at the time, she's like, "Why is he mowing his lawn at eight thirty at night?" I was like, "Cause if he goes out in the day, his skin just bubbles up. That's why." You can't see how bad the lawn looks. <laughs> right. The reason I ask is, uh, again today, I was awakened at the stunningly early hour of seven a.m. by my neighbor, who I think is is duplicating the Winchester Mystery House over two doors over from me. <laughs> I don't know if you know what the Winchester Mystery House is. You know what yes, the Winchester Mystery House is? I do, yeah. Yes, the Winchester Mystery House, for those of you who aren't familiar, is the mansion owned by Sarah Winchester, who is the widow of William Winchester, who invented the Winchester rifle. And Sarah believed that her house was haunted by all the spirits who had ever been killed by a Winchester rifle. And the only way to keep the spirits from, from haunting her personally was to keep adding on to the house forever. So she has this giant, crazy mansion with rooms that don't go anywhere and stairs that go into blank walls and doors that open into nothing, um, just so that it would keep being built and built and built. And know what's hilarious about that house? Because she's she's dead now, and um, they sold off some of the property. Like the house was on a huge thing of land, and so the house is still there, but some of the property is now like a, a Walmart or a Best Buy or something. Nice. So you have this like insane looking mansion in the in the background of like a America shopping center. Right next to the Winchester Mystery Walmart. <laughs> nice. Well, I, the reason I bring it up is again, seven o'clock in the morning, my neighbor was using a circular saw or some other extremely loud power tool to rebuild his porch for, I think, the, thir- the third time now. Um, not quite sure why, but he's built it and torn it apart now three times just this summer and once last year. Not sure what that's about, but I'm I'm pretty much pretty much ready to go over and ask him if he is the heir to the Winchester fortune. And now all of the ghosts are somehow trapped on his porch. <laughs> he's a, it's a very localized haunting. It's a very localized haunting, yes. <laughs> I had to have porches redone at my house a couple of years ago. It was amazing because every time the guy called, it cost me more money. Yes. Um. Like the phone would ring and it would just hear. I was like, hey, what's up? He's like, oh, boy. I'm like, oh. <laughs> Please. Yeah, that was, a, that was a bad summer. <laughs> that was a, that's definitely a bad summer. Oof. Home ownership, man. Oof. Yeah, every time a friend of mine buys a house, I'm like, congratulations on never having any money ever again as long as you live. Welcome to the yeah. day-to-day constant worry. Was that a creek? Yeah. Is that a drip? <laughs> What's that I smell? smell? Gas. Yep. <laughs> Are we on fire? <laughs> Every day. Uh, too funny. Yeah. Well, you know what they say: if you like paying rent, you'll love having a mortgage. Oh yeah. All right, but let's get this uh, show a rocking and or rolling. Rolling. Yes. Or if it's September twenty first, which it is, flying in, flying inverted for a quarter mile for the very first time. 
So this is the week beginning September 21st. You're alluding to something crazy. I am. What do you got? I am indeed. In the early days of flight, uh, where the only people who were insane enough to get into, which was pretty much a, an engine-powered kite, uh, were guys like Adolphe Pigot, a French pilot and daredevil, who, in 1913, performed the first true aerobatic maneuver by flying upside down on purpose for a quarter mile. My God, now, now the plane was just invented like 10 years prior. Three years prior. I thought it was 1903. I think 1910 was the first powered flight, but I could be okay. wrong. Well, no, Kitty Hawk was 1903. Okay. Okay, so the first powered flight, so it's like three years, and then here's Adolf something French, and he's like, you know what? Adolf, yep, Adolf Pigot, yeah. Now, you know what? I'm going to fly this thing upside down and see what happens. <laughs> just, just for a go. Just for fun. Yep. He's an interesting guy. So he, he didn't just fly upside down for a quarter of a mile. He was also the man who invented and tested the first parachute. <laughs> I would like to think that the person that invented it was also going to be the person that tested it. Because like, it's true. like hey, Jeff, I got this idea, right? <laughs> this is going to be awesome. Yeah. Watch. Just put this, just put this vest yeah. on. No one will notice. Um, I, he came up with the idea for his next trick, which was he sort of invented the loop-de-loop mm -hmm. while he was testing his parachute. And he did that by leaping out of his plane – didn't have somebody fly him someplace because planes couldn't carry two people in 1913. So he jumped out of his plane and pulled his chute and tested his parachute and watched his plane sort of pitch up and then do a loop and pitch down and crash. <laughs> and he thought to himself, if I had only been on that plane, <laughs> I could have done a loop. Could uh, this guy and, like not afford a handgun? These are like these <laughs> wicked, thinly veiled attempts at suicide here. Right. Nope. It's, it's Crazy. He went on to become uh, France's first ace in World War One. Interesting dude. How did this man die? Do you know? <laughs> I'm pretty sure he died in World War One. Oh, okay. Um, I'll have to go and look, but it, based on the fact that he was doing things like before the war, like uh, if I ever have to dodge another plane, I may need to do a loop de loop, and then he invented the loop de loop. So, It'd be amazing if he like choked to death on like a muscle or something like that. Just some... <laughs> right, he, he he tripped and fell down the stairs and like cracked his head yeah. like, on his way to his plane. You know, or he slipped on a banana peel. <laughs> Allergic reaction to strawberries. Just something really <laughs> like benign and crazy. Beaten to death by a mime. <laughs> no one heard it happen. Uh, all right, moving on to September the twenty second. 1976, the first episode of Charlie's Angels, a, uh, a, a wow. cultural revolution if there ever was one. I, I wasn't allowed to watch that show when I was a kid because it was on too late. Yeah, it came on at 9 o'clock at night. They uh, the, the tabloids like to refer to it as jiggle television. Going back and watching that show now? Yep. I can't say I disagree with that as a description. So the premise of the show was there was three, oh, well, I mean, they, they narrate in the, in the beginning of the show. There was three girls that went to the police academy and they all got yep. like desk jobs and stuff like that. Yep. These three girls wanted to be cops. So yep. there was this like private detective agency run by a guy named Charlie. Yes, who you never saw. Right. Who only communicated with them through a speakerphone. Right, right, right. And uh, he hired them to be private detectives rather than yeah. cops. He was basically like he was pimping them out to solve crimes. Yeah. So um, and they, it kind of followed like the Scooby-Doo kind of model if you think about it. <laughs> yep. Yep. And uh, it doesn't surprise me that it would follow that model. I think the 70s was the the heyday of mystery mystery-themed uh, adult TV. Right. There was a lot of shows that were like that that were on. Few that were as clearly like female centric, even though it was in an ex exploitative way, right. in a way that was certainly hewed more towards the sort of equal rights amendments discussion that was going on in the country at the time to put the females at the the girls at the front of the show. So that they were the brains of the show and they were the action stars of the show and they were the draw of the show. And they were all meant to be competent characters who were very good at their jobs, who had like broken through the glass ceiling and working for this guy's detective agency. That was a that was a big deal. And it went on to influence shows after that. Uh, yeah, sure. Do you remember who did the voice for Charlie? Is it William Forsythe? The guy that was no, on? It was John Forsythe. John Forsythe. John Forsythe, yes. William Forsythe was uh, the guy from The Devil's Rejects. Oh, yes, not him. Not him. 
John Forsythe. He was he was on. Di- yeah, he was, he was on, on Dynasty. Dynasty. Yes. Yeah. Another show where a lot of female empowerment of Linda Evans and I forget the other woman's name beating each other uh, up in Joan a, Collins sprinkler. Joan Collins. Yes. So Charlie's Angels was on until nineteen. It was on from seventy six to nineteen eighty one. It, la- it lasted a while. Ooh, that's a that's a run, yeah. yeah. It made a superstar out of Farrah Fawcett, who was Farrah Fawcett Majors yeah. at the time. And she wasn't on the show long. I think she was on for like maybe two seasons. And then uh, the other two girls were Jacqueline Smith, who was absolutely, to me, the most glamorous and beautiful one of the bunch. But Farrah Fawcett kind of like got all the attention because she was a blonde. And, um, she, and blondes- she also did that. She also did that super famous poster oh, that everybody yes, had. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and Kate Jackson is a beautiful woman, but she never really got the the sexy attention that like the other girls all got. Right? Uh, yes, definitely. She was definitely the Laverne uh, character, like Laverne and Shirley. Yeah, uh, exactly. Uh, like I said, she's yeah. a beautiful woman. It's just that they just yeah they never really gave her that whole uh, sex spot attention. Uh, other uh, angels that came and went were Cheryl Ladd, who to me that was the yep. one I liked. I really she replaced Farrah Fawcett. Yep, I, I really liked her. And then uh, Shelly Hack came on board for a bit. Don't remember her at all. Yeah, she never really did much other than Charlie's Angels. I remember seeing her like on an off-Broadway play on HBO. And then the mm. last of the Angels was somebody named Tanya Roberts. She was only on. Oh for, yeah, she was only yeah, on for one her. season, but she went on. She was um. She was a Bond girl. Yep, and she was on that '70s show. She was the mom yep. on that '70s show. She was in Beastmaster. Yep. And she was in Sheena, Queen of the Jungle, where they dyed her beautiful red hair blonde. Yeah, she yep. was in a lot of stuff. Not the best of the Bond films. Beauty Kill is the one where approximately 95-year-old Roger Moore was, was running well, out the clock. And they used the body move. double. Yeah, yeah. They used the body double for everything that wasn't him just standing there, like, saying things. Yeah, but Christopher Walken. Yes, he was great. <laughs> and Grace Jones in that and one, Grace too. Jones. And Duran Duran did the theme song. How, yes. The the worst part of that James Bond movie is James Bond. <laughs> James Bond. Yeah. Yes. All right. All right. So let's move on to the twenty third. Right. September twenty third. Okay. So this is a funny one. Nineteen sixty nine. Northern Star, an Illinois University newspaper, starts a rumor that Paul McCartney is dead. Ooh. Yes. So this is this I, is where I love that. <laughs> and they base it on like that Abbey Road album cover. Because of the order of people crossing the street and that Paul has no shoes on and that dead people are buried in England with no shoes on. And if you play the songs backwards, it says poor Paul is dead. And there's all this other like ridiculousness that goes into this rumor. The funny thing is, is that it didn't stay localized to Northern Star and Illinois University. Right. It's spread all over the place. I, uh, that is like one of my favorite urban legends of all time. Yep. And what's great is, like you said, the Rubus started, what, 1969? Yep. Like, the Beatles were almost gone at that point anyway. Right. And then, I'm sure if, if he would have been dead, they would have they would have found the, the killer because all three of the remaining, remaining people would have had DNA on the knife. So, Well, it, if I remember the legend correctly, because, like I said, the, the Rubus started in 69, they kind of, like, retconned all the stuff to, to make this, this story. Uh, right. Apparently... Paul McCartney died in a car accident, mm. and uh, which is he blew his mind out in a car from uh, yep. a day in the life. Yep. There is on the Abbey Road album cover. There is a I think it's a Volkswagen, yep. and the license plate says twenty AIF twenty AF, meaning yep. to say yep. Paul McCartney was twenty seven years old. He would have been twenty eight had he lived, right? You know, if he had lived. Uh, the other clues was on the Let It Be album cover. Paul McCartney's the only one with a beard. Mm-hmm. And the reason why he has a beard is because that's not Paul McCartney. That's right. his replacement, Billy right. Shears, if that name rings yep. a bell. It does. Yeah. And uh, he gets by with a little help from his friends. Right. And it was to, you know, hide how much he doesn't actually look like Paul McCartney. Uh, right. The but truth, he sounds exactly like yeah. him. The truth was, Paul McCartney did get into it, wasn't a car accident. It was like a Vespa accident or something like that. Mm-hmm. And he had a scar on his face, which is why he had the beard at the time to hide it. Right. Yep. I've crashed my scooter. Yep. <laughs> I'm trying to think of like some of the other so called clues. Like, I know if you look at the cover of Sgt. Pepper's, it's very obvious it looks like a funeral. Yes, it does. It does. If you take a, this is one of the great, great ones. If you take a mirror. And you hold it up to the the bass drum in the middle, 
Yep. It gives like the date and then it says he died. <laughs> Which yeah, the date of the uh the alleged car accident. And there's like right. all sorts of like I said, all sorts of like retconned kind of rumors that go mm-hmm. back. And I think the Beatles kind of just like leaned into that curve too. Mm. Yeah, I, I'm. Why not? Right. Oh yeah. You might. You might as well. You know. I mean, what do you do with that? Like they. They did have a guy who was in the band that that, that died before they became famous. That's Stu Sutcliffe. Remember, he, he. I think he died of cancer. Well, I he just remember the, the guy. The uh, fifth. That's what Pete Best, the previous drummer. Pete Best, and there was also Billy Preston, the somebody that they called the Fifth Beatle. Yeah, uh, well, he was he was in the movie Sasha Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. He sings a, a a really good version of Get Back. I didn't know that. Well, I didn't I didn't know Stu because Stu Sutcliffe's girlfriend was the one who gave him their mop top haircuts when they were in um, Germany. Ah. still playing like that was bef- Motown style songs. That was before before Paul, they that was before Paul yeah. died. Yes, yes, yes. That was when the original lyrics were to I want to hold your hand. Were I want to hold your hand, but I can't because I'm dead. <laughs> So <laughs> I want to hold your hand, but you're going to have to kneel on the grave. Right. Yes. That's, 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 that's the way it was. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to think of uh, some of the other uh, quote unquote clues. I think one of them was on uh, Sergeant Pepper's Paul is on the back cover. Paul is the only one facing backwards. Right. And on the, on uh, the gatefold, when you open it up, uh, Paul has a patch on his shoulder that says OPD. Right. Which is officially pronounced dead. Dead. Yes. <laughs> well, yeah. It actually stands for like Oslo Police Department or something like that. Right. The other part that I always thought was funny was like someone actually thought like, well, well, there's all this all this weird stuff on the album covers. Like there must be a clue somewhere else. And then they start like ruining their records by playing them backwards. All oh, right. And they start looking for like as if you could hide, you could hide things in the listening to stuff backwards. Right. And then they found stuff that they. You know, your brain builds a pattern, right? When it hears a rep- repetitive set of things, so they start hearing things like "Poor Paul is dead." <laughs> yeah. What an arduous yeah. tax! Ta- uh, <sighs> what an arduous task that is. Yes, well, and it goes to show that we had like a post, a, a, like a post-war economy, and people had spare time because, <laughs> like, going back and like ruining and listening to records backwards like that, looking for things, became a pastime that led to, you know, part of the uh, early '80s satanic panic. But uh. Right. Oh, that's that what yeah. it was. Their 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 drug fueled uh, noise rock experiment, Revolution Number Nine. Right. Yep. John Lennon says number nine, number nine, yep. quite often. Yep. And if you play number nine backwards, it says. Rip, 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 rip. <laughs> <laughs> but if you force your ear, it says, "Turn me on, dead man." Dead man. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what you do behind closed doors there, Mister Lennon, but leave me out of it. Right. All right. Crazy man. So, uh, speaking of revolutions, a uh, a cultural revolution happened the next day in history, September twenty fourth, nineteen ninety one. Nirvana releases their Nevermind album. Ah, uh, yeah, that was definitely a an earth shattering event. That record. Yeah. Second second record for that band. Right. Uh, the f- right first record was Bleach. Yep. That was and that was, was released uh, on Sub Pop. Sub Pop. Was like, yep. Like the world's biggest minor label, definitely the the seeds of of that sort of eastward and then worldwide wave from the Portland Seattle area, mm-hmm. the Pacific Northwest in the United States. Nirvana's Nevermind kind of had occupies this weird point in popular music because it sort of has a little bit of punk in it and it has a little bit of metal in it and it has a little bit of classic style rock in it and it has a bunch of ambiguous gibberish lyrics and all of those things in the right proportions with a with a hook with a really with a hook to it make for a great song and, and it, like you said though it was, it was a nice mix of everything because not only did it have like like noisy kind of like like you said gibberish lyrics but it also had some yep. really deep and profound lyrics in there mixed yep. peppered in as well uh, the, the song that really broke that record out was smells like teen spirit which is you, you can read those lyrics backwards and forwards and they make just about just as much sense but again, the song is super hooky with a super raw and clean guitar and that that like sort of thunder drums that get to, right to this the heart of the song and and all of those things in the right proportions. Like you know the movie High Fidelity, I yeah, think. that makes for like a great High Fidelity kind of question. If you were to make uh, you know your top five list of opening tracks on the on the album, mm-hmm. yeah, smells like Teen Spirit has to make that list. Nevada's uh, they can be a polarizing band, 
I know there's a lot of like contrarians because they were so popular. They're gonna be like, yeah, I don't like them. But you know, there's no there's no doubting the the cultural impact of Nirvana. But that's what I'm here for because I'm gonna throw a curveball. Oh, okay. Curve away. All right. So you and I were both around at that time. You and I both remember. I was playing in bands and you were working. I was working at a radio station. You were working at a radio station and you were also working at the Curfew Nightclub. I was indeed. So you saw a lot of bands play. Now, Nirvana, that album came out in the fall of 1991. And it didn't kill metal overnight. Nope. Metal was already dying. Um, it had gotten really, really weak and saturated. I remember there was this one band called Firehouse <laughs> that, you know, they were marketed as like a metal band, but they were about as metal as, as nothing. They were just yeah. syrup rock, you know? It's it's true. Well, okay, so like it's uh, just to drag us back a little bit, right? Metal went through this weird evolution from the 1970s through the 80s and into the 90s. And what happened was they realized that if they wanted – girls to come to their concerts they had to play songs that girls would listen to mm-hmm. right yeah. so it's hard it's hard to find girls if all of your audience are dudes re rush uh <laughs> so they start there were bands that capitalized on this and started to release sort of power ballad was born you sort of take a page out of aerosmith's book right so aerosmith style like power ballad you start to throw in like a little bit of sort of t-rex power ballad and you get this sort of more soft, less sort of horror movie themed or occult themed or whatever metal, you just keep drifting further and further. So you go from like Quiet Riot, which is music about kind of music about nothing but listening to music. <laughs> Quiet Riot, the, the world's biggest Slade cover band. Speaking of the 70s, right? Slade's the 70s band. Yep. To like Motley Crue who go from their first record with Too Young to Fall in Love into stuff that's way more oriented towards... Well, there was towards there was shout popular 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 music. Yeah, shout of the there devil. Was shout but of the didn't devil. Get radio play. Yeah, but then there was right. shout of the devil, and then there was like theater of pain where they were all dressed in pink. Right. Well, well shout of the devil didn't have any singles that charted. Theater of pain did. Right. A, I dated a girl that loved Molly Crew and White Snake and Winger and Warrant, and I saw all of them. Yep. The audience was like. 60, 40 girls who were there for the band and the guys that were with the girls. <laughs> and guys with their arms folded. <laughs> right. Like, yeah, okay, it's great. There was this middle spot, though. And I, I like in between, like, we'll say 89 and 91, this like two year period. Like I said, it was the metal wasn't there anymore. It was just like this syrup rock. And then before Nirvana, like somewhere between Guns N' Roses and Nirvana, there was Faith No More. And Faith No More fans love Faith No More. And yes. everybody else knows one song. You know? <laughs> but You want it all, but you can't have that's it. That's right. But I remember like vividly, like before Nirvana broke, Faith No More was around. And I yep. remember overnight, because I used to go see bands play all the time, watching the lead singers of the bands go from wearing skin tight pants and blowing out their hair thinking that they're Brett Michaels, to wearing... Like oversized T-shirts and shorts and stuff. Yeah, surfer shorts, oversized T-shirts, and holding their microphone backwards because they all thought they were Mike Patton from Faith No More. Um, So Nirvana gets all the credit, but I uh, I think Faith No More really primed the pump. I think too that there was a, I mean, there was a shift coming in popular music in general. Like that song, Epic, Mm -hmm. that song charted from that record. But I, I can't remember. I think they had one more song that charted, but didn't go to number one. Right, fallen to pieces. One more, you could make the argument that Epic oh, is Epic, like the first sort of new metal track. Epic is a right? a rap rock fusion song. Yep, uh, one of the first, not the first, but one of the first. And fallen to pieces is more like um, like a, almost like a funk infused rock. At this point, there's there are, are all of these sort of forces are kind of coming together. And being at the radio station that I was at. Mm-hmm. We were we were looking at stuff like that was really popular right before Nirvana broke was like EMF. I don't know if anybody remembers them. You're unbelievable. Uh, yeah, Jesus Jones and the Farm and Seal before Seal was like only known for that terrible kiss from a rose song from Batman whatever. Oh. Um, had a fantastic first album that was super funky. It was a great remix of that song, Crazy. But anyway, yeah. so like Nirvana hit, and then all of within the space of three weeks, once that that first. We got it as a 12-inch single, yeah. 12 Smells Like Team Spirit. And within three weeks, our our 
our rotation clock had changed so that that song was being played every hour. And then anything that sounded like that song that came in the year after went heavy rotation and other stuff maybe didn't because of it. Like it had just fallen off. I mean, this is a college station. We ended up shifting a little bit to help propagate that style of music that we really liked. And then it became super popular to the point where everybody like listened to Nirvana and they were on MTV all the time. And within that year, bands that sounded like Nirvana started to get picked up or bands that were friends with Nirvana or bands that played with Nirvana or bands that Nirvana recommended started to get picked up and get signals. And we ended up with Pearl Jam and Allison Chains and Temple of the Dog and a bunch of other ones, Smashing Pumpkins and, and all the stuff that sort of comes out of that area. What I like to refer to now as herd dur music is <laughs> it all sounds like herd dur to me as at my advanced age now. Every yeah. Yeah. So. All right. Uh, all right. Moving on. Oh, wait. Also, oh, wait. wait. September 24th. We should mention this. Okay. The, the clearly dead Paul McCartney <laughs> releases... No more lonely nights in 1984. On the same day as the Nirvana. On the same on, on the same day. On, on the anniversary yeah. of his death. On the anniversary <laughs> of his death. Yes, and and going on to prove that he is dead. Mm. He he. This is like him in the middle of a career uh, where he's in that adult contemporary component where all of his music is hard to listen to. Yeah. So. Adult contemporary. <sighs> you... I've got a song. I'm doing a song with Michael Jackson. You... He's bought all our music. Yes. <laughs> Fut- he, owns, he owns me bloody house. <laughs> Future uh, worst song ever, Hall of Famer. <laughs> All right. Uh, but let's move on to the 25th. All right. Uh, 1926, Henry Ford uh, announces that his factories will operate uh, and his, his employees will have an eight-hour, five-day work week. There may be separate shifts, different shifts, but every shift will be eight hours and, the, and every buddy's work week will be – 40 hours and it falls into a philosophy from just a little bit earlier um, that the Na- national labor relations board ended up adopting, which was based on the theory of eight for work, eight for sleep and eight for what you will. So to take that work eight hours, it was found that in the environment that he was in that industrial environment, that's about as long as you can be doing that kind of repetitive work before you slow down, make mistakes, get injured, hurt someone else, or slow production. Well, the joke's on him because I sleep at work. Ha! (laughs) (laughs) And amazingly enough, we're still following that same model now, that industrial model now. I don't work an industrial job, but my work week is eight hours, five days a week, Mm -hmm. Monday through Friday. I would recommend a a book to anyone who's interested. It's a book called Bullshit Jobs by David Graeber. Uh, And it sort of breaks down the idea of the culture of work and how in the postmodern era it might be worthwhile to reexamine how much work really truly needs to be done and whether or not that eight for sleep, eight for work, and eight for what you will still applies today. It's a fantastically good read. And he does touch on the the Ford plant in that book. I I got news for him because I I break down my day and we have, you know, eight for work. I don't get eight hours of sleep. And in between, like, everything else, like, you know, having to, you know, clean around the house, make supper, uh, work on the podcast, uh, whatever it comes out to, I get maybe an hour and a half to two hours a day. I don't know where this eight hours of what you will comes from, but what I will ain't happening. Well, that's that's the beauty of what you will, right? Because it can mean anything. It's like me. What what I will is, well, I will be putting all the dishes in the dishwasher because my children are unable to do that for some insane reason. I will or be driving I back and forth be, to work. I, I will be making dinner. I will be at the grocery store. I will be going to register my car. Like that's the what you will part. Oh, wait. Everything that you're not doing when you're, you know, sort of on the clock for someone else at the work part or asleep for the sleep part. I will be banging my palms against my steering wheel going, just move, just move in traffic. <laughs> this isn't what I will. This is what you will. Will you move? Yes. Been there. What the hell's wrong yeah. with you? All right. So let's move on to the 26th. September 26th. September 26th, 1960 is the first televised presidential debate. That must have been 
Well, that must have been amazing to see for the. I mean, for somebody who had never, who, whose politics had never become that intimate before, right? To be able to be in the audience and watch that debate and not read about it afterwards or be in attendance where that was the only thing that you had before. Maybe I don't know if there was there were radio debates. Yeah, but, I, I'm pretty sure they were on the radio, but that was the first time it was televised, and it was right. John F. Kennedy v. Nixon, Richard Nixon. That was the make or break moment for for uh, for both of them, and famously. Richard Nixon could be seen sweating. Yes, he definitely had a face for radio. Yep. And like anyone like anyone else who is where there's a, a visual component that becomes part of the technology, mm-hmm. if you can't meet that visual component, right? What happens is that you you lose the debate or you won't continue with get your record contract or whatever. Going from Kennedy who looked like somebody who was born on television and had always been on television and would be on television forever mm-hmm. to Nixon who looked like someone who was in the middle of having a fantastic heart attack or had a heat lamp on him and was about to like jump out of his skin because he couldn't deal with being on television. Right. Everybody focused on how good and classy and clear and together and with it Kennedy was, and that definitely impacted the, the election. Now, let's jump forward. It wasn't a debate, but it was a presidential moment, and a lot of people make reference to it as a career killer. Your friend and mine, Howard Dean was a yes. presidential candidate on the Democratic ticket in, was. I'm going to say it was in, was it for the 2000 election? Yeah, it was 2000. Yeah. Yep. And he was doing very, very well. He was polling very well, and it looked like he was going to just slide into the Democratic uh, National Convention and get uh, the yep. nomination, and he was very excited, and right on national TV, he went, yeah! And yep. that killed him. That was the yep. end of his career. And you can thank the, whoever the sound guy was who kept his microphone recorded but didn't record the crowd because the whole crowd made that noise. Right. But it was isolated to his microphone. So he just went, Rah! yeah, and he looked and sounded like no one was as enthusiastic as he was. Right. That was in right before the New Hampshire primary. So that was – he was in Iowa. That was the Iowa caucus. Right. So he would won the Iowa caucus. And then he came to New Hampshire and he got, he got housed. Right. He got he got blown out here. Going back to Nixon, um, I mean Richard Nixon eventually you know became president years later, but that moment and that's a that's a cliche. You don't really hear it as often, but you'll hear people say that. You'll hear like the older crowd say that, like, "Oh my God, I'm sweating like Nixon," because yeah. he was very uh, uh, you know evidently sweating on national television like that. Yep. Yeah, and it destroyed him. That that was the. That's what broke him. That's what uh, really put uh, Kennedy over at that at that debate. And then, I, you know, in the weird the weird way that politics can work, right? Kennedy Kennedy gets assassinated. Johnson takes over and only chose not to run after the first full term, right? Right. Johnson didn't. And then it was what Nixon and McGovern, right? Right. McGovern, who had as much as much charisma as an empty coffee cup. So much so that and I don't even remember his name. Yeah. So much, so much George McGovern, so much so that you don't remember his name. But Nixon had had cachet because people still remembered who he was. And was able to parlay that into like, remember me, like remember, I tried to do this before, but here I am now again. You know, let's let's get out of Vietnam and let's fix the let's, you know, fix the society programs that that Johnson had tried to put together and stuff. And. And was able to parlay that into a victory over McGovern yeah. because he was a known candidate by then. And a lot of people forget that about Nixon. Nixon is the one that put the uh, the welfare system in. Yep. Also, one of my favorite bits about Nixon, in his later years, in like the last couple of years of his life, he loved rap music and would listen to it constantly. <laughs> it takes a nation of millions to hold him back. <laughs> he, uh, yeah. He, he, and some sweat. Yeah, he thought it was... Uh, he, he he really enjoyed listening to rap music. I would just love to see Nixon dressed up in like sweatsuits and big Adidas with no shoelaces. I guess he was like, oh, I just want to hear another one of one of those Ghetto Boy records. <laughs> Put those Ghetto Boy records on. Like, are you sure you're all right, Richard? Oh, I love them. The NWA stands for Nixon with yeah. attitude. <laughs> Put my own, put my own record on. Or <laughs> Nixon to kick around anymore. I have a terrible Nixon impression, so please forgive me, world. You have to. Uh... You have to shake your head back and forth so you can make the jowl noises, though. Yeah, but I can't do that with the headphones well, I'll on. I'll take off my headphones so I can do it. Here it is. <laughs> All right, so let's uh, get on to the 27th. Hey, Henry Ford shows up again. Hey! Uh, this time in ni- 1908. That guy. Uh, so it's funny that we that we brought up the, a little earlier that he announces the eight-hour 
five-day work week in 1926. Well, many, many years before that, his first Model T leaves the Paquette plant in Detroit, Michigan. So he had some time to see sort of how the idea of managing his assembly line worked. And it was part of that evolution of the understanding of how work works. He was able to go from building that first Model T to changing the way that everyone in industry sort of starts to work. What's kind of cool about the Model T, to bring us back to the actual 1908 uh, car, yep. is it doesn't drive the same way that cars that we drive today drive, even though it's the first car, right? It set the mold for what a car was, an affordable car for the people, right? right? There's a couple of cool like things about the Model T that everybody knows, like Ford said he'd have to pay his people $5 a, $5 a day right, to work in the factory, which was way higher than any of the other industries right. were paying in Detroit. And when he got pushback from the other factory owners, he's like, hey, who's going to buy my cars? You know? Yep. So he needs to he needs to be able to pay people enough to buy his cars. They drive, they don't drive like a car, but they drive like a riding lawnmower. What do you mean? So, okay, so in a riding lawnmower, I don't know if you, the audience has been on one, but you depress a clutch brake, put the thing in whatever gear you're going to be in, and then you let the clutch brake up and the thing takes off so there's yeah. no like throttle right well a model t has one clutch brake that you push down and when you left up on the clutch brake it accelerates to about 25 miles an hour that wait that's if how you need to, that's how the original cars worked yeah and if you had to slow down you have to depress the clutch brake and it it, de- it disconnects the transmission and starts to break the wheels what are you nuts? So, that, so that you slow down yeah and then if you want to go faster than 25 there's a second a second gear that you put it into and you can accelerate past that <laughs> I think the top speed for these was like 40 or 50 miles an hour. Um, well, but yeah. that's that's I mean, the way the Model T's drove. It's not like they had a great you know shock absorber system. I think at 40 miles an hour, all your fillings would fall out of your head. Yeah, so there, there weren't a lot of roads in 1908. I think it was Truman was part of the Army expedition in 1925 that crossed the United States looking for places that needed roads to determine what the, the state of America's system was. And that sort of eventually led to the highway system in the 50s. If you want to have some fun read up on the 1910 new york to paris car race which the model t doesn't participate in imagine crossing the united states i'm about to say i mean new york to paris and it was meant to go it went from new york to alaska and they thought they'd be able to drive across the bering strait because it would be frozen into russia right and then through mongolia and russia all the way to eventually paris uh it did not go well uh it's a super fun story uh, there's not a lot of gas stations along nope, that way. There I aren't. Think. No. Uh, there are no gas stations. So and that's where the plan fell apart. And that's where the plan collapsed. Well, they started in a snowstorm, and it, if you if you go to YouTube, you can actually see the car, the actual car that technically won the race. And I'm saying won as I make air quotes, but technically won the race. It was an American car, a Thompson Flyer was the name of it, and it was co-opted by the U.S. government to race in this race. Because there were no Americans in the race until this American car with an American driver, an American navigator, and a, another guy were in it. Uh, and they took this this car that was destined for an actual customer. And they're like, nope, you're not going to get that one. This one's going to be in this car race. And they took off. And, and someone found it in a garage not that long ago. And in looking at the underside of it, could see where there were repairs made that matched the repairs described in the diary of the race. And uh-huh. realized he was looking at the actual Thompson Flyer that was in that race in 1910, and it still drives. Really? Yeah. Holy cow! Yep. That's like that that Volkswagen in that Woody Allen movie, right? Yep. Bye. That's right. But seriously, like New York to Paris, that you were Paris. saying before, I'm thinking logically, it sounds easier if you headed east. <laughs> yeah, it probably would have been. Let's get into the celebrity birthdays. Yes. September 21st, 1866, H.G. Wells, the author of War of the Worlds, The Invisible Man, Island of Dr. Moreau, a bunch of other stuff, is born. And the time machine, I believe, right? And the time machine. Born in Bromley, uh, Bromley uh, Kent, in, in England. Wells is a really interesting guy. Came to the realization, he's always been sort of a pacifist in his writing, even though he clearly didn't like Martians. Um <laughs> Or, you know, who does? To, who does, but who does? What I like most about him is that he believed that if everyone had a common understanding of history or to history to where we were at the time, post-World War One, mm-hmm. that there would be less opportunity or less disagreement that would lead to war. And to accomplish this sort of generalized floor of knowledge for the world's people, he wrote 
a series of books called The Outline of History that were accessible and meant to be read by everyone so that everyone had sort of a common understanding of the history that brought us from the dinosaurs to present. Um, it's really interesting to read. It was very successful, probably more successful than his science fiction books when the books were coming out, mm -hmm. but never had the effect that he had expected. So, I don't know, Wells is a, one of my favorites, so... All right, so All moving right. on to September 22nd, 1949, the lead singer of Whitesnake, David Coverdale. David Coverdale, the man with the most majestic hair in 80s rock and roll. Amazing hair. Um, Amazing I was unaware hair. that he actually sang for Deep Purple for a little while, too. Yeah, I didn't know that either. I was watching a YouTube video recently. They were talking about aging rock stars, and they were showing... You know, like Vince Neil Young and then Vince Neil now, and can they still do it? And one person, man, David Coverdale, um, here he is, you know, 71 years old, and he's doing that, uh, here I go, from here I go again. <laughs> yep. And yep. can he do Which it is, like. And that, now what? it's a song about his prostate. Yeah. <laughs> can he do it like he did in 1986? No. Yes. Can he no. do it, though? Yes. Yep. He can kind of yep. still do it. Good for him. Yep. Hey, there you go. I'm sure you'll like run into him. I, I know that like there are so many bands from that time that sort of pool together and tour now. So right. it's like, you know, Journey and Heart and Winger and whatever, and sort of do like these weird festival sort of tours and stuff. So he, he may end up bumping into that guy out there. All right, yeah. next, September 23rd. September 23rd, 1795. A guy named Alexander Twilight, who's a minister and a politician. He's the first African American to graduate and hold public office. He was born in Vermont, was the first and only African-American who served in a state legislature before the Civil War. Oh, wow. He served in the in the Vermont House of Representatives, yeah, and went on to be the president of a college before he died of a stroke. But super interesting guy. Um, his father fought in the Revolutionary War, uh, was a free black man, and he was born as a free free black man in, in Vermont, uh, graduated from college as a minister, and then went on to get in, as a state representative. It's amazing, amazing, interesting story. Cool. All right, uh, let's go on to the 24th, uh, uh, September 24th. Oddly enough, just one day removed from the anniversary of her husband's death, uh, uh, in 1941, Linda McCartney, wife, Linda McCartney, wife of the recently deceased Paul McCartney. <laughs> recently presumed deceased. Yep. Uh, officially uh, pronounced deceased. With a long-standing 20-year posthumous career of adult contemporary rock and roll. Right. Uh, Linda McCartney. It was really sad and really beautiful. Whenever Linda McCartney passed away, mm -hmm. Paul McCartney said one of the saddest and most beautiful things. He said, I've lost me girlfriend. That was so sad. They, The entire time that they were together, they only slept in a different bed, I think, twice out of the whole time that they were together and married. Wow. Yep. They always were, They were always together. The next sentence, though, like puts a spin on it because he said, I think, I, I think I'll have a hot dog because they were both vegetarians for years. Oh, years. right. right okay. <laughs> I think I'm going to gut myself a rare steak. <laughs> I think I'll have a hot dog. <laughs> I don't have to eat this damn quinoa. <laughs> Enough of these tofu burgers. <laughs> All right. Next. Yes. Next uh, going okay. on. September 25th, 1903. Favorite painter of mine, Mark Rothko. He's an American. He's an abstract expressionist. Born in New York City in 1903. Now, Rothko's an interesting guy. If You've probably seen his paintings and not known it. He's known mostly for painting a geometric shape, like an orange stripe. Oh, wait. Is that orange stripe off-centered on like it a is. brown canvas? Yep. I have seen that painting live, okay? That, that painting is at the Museum of Modern Art in New York City. Yep. And I remember saying to my girlfriend at the time, Dawn, I was like, look at, I could knock out like a dozen of those in a half an hour. For Rothko's interesting in that he not only could knock out those, but he could do other stuff. And, and in, in taking art down to its simplest form, presenting it in a way that re doesn't require it to be tied to a story, a myth, or a place, or a time, or anything else, it by in and of itself, is just an expression of whatever the audience brings to it. It's really, really interesting and powerful. I went to a couple of exhibits of his when they come around to the MFA in Boston. I try to go whenever his stuff comes around because it's so evocative to sit and look at a blue square. Because That at, blue square is at the moment as well. What's important to me isn't the blue 
It's not the brush work. It's none of that stuff. It's that I'm at the museum. I'm in this room. They've set the lighting up this way. There are this many people here. This is what I'm thinking about as I'm looking at this blue square. Like that is all part of the experience of that painting. And it's one of the things that I like so much about it. That blue square, like I said, is at the MoMA. And I would see like people just like like staring at it. Yep. And I just want to go up in their ear and go, you don't get it. Stop making believe that you get ups- it. I think it's upside down. <laughs> so, <laughs> All right. So moving on to September the 26th, 1849, ah, yes. a man by the name of Ivan Pavlov. Huh, I don't recognize that name, but it rings a bell. <laughs> Ivan Pavlov is a Russian physiologist and pioneer in psychology, uh, most famous for conditioning his dogs where every time he was about to feed him, he would ring a bell. He would ring a bell, and then he would feed them. And then next time it was dinner time, he would ring a bell, and he would feed them, and on and on and on and on. And then he would ring a bell and then not feed them, and the dogs would start salivating all over the place because they knew that bell meant food, so their mouths were getting all ready. So if you ever hear the expression, like Pavlov's dog, that's where it comes from, his man. And that's his birthday. I had a psychology professor in college who used to always describe, and I don't know why he described it this way, but he always described the dog food that Pavlov used as powdered meat, hmm. which I always thought is the strangest description of anything because I, I can't square the circle that those two things are in. Powdered meat? Powdered meat. Obviously, you never worked at a Taco Bell kitchen. I have never worked in a Taco Bell kitchen, so powdered meat and me, we don't know what that means. Speaking of powdered meat, <laughs> September 27th, 1947. Marvin Lee Aday, also known as Non-Powdered Meatloaf, <laughs> the American rock musician and singer of Bad Out of Hell, is born in Dallas, Texas. I have a funny meatloaf story. Do tell. Yeah, I go to uh, the you know comic book conventions and the multimedia conventions fairly often. And meatloaf was uh, at one of them, right? And yes. Meatloaf famously was in Rocky Horror Picture Show. And as Eddie, as Eddie, yes. You know, the Rocky Horror Picture Show to this day still has a, a fan base that salivates like Pavlov's dogs. Yes, I, I have a 15-year-old daughter who like lives and dies by that movie. Okay. There is a, a couple of troops out of Providence. I'm friendly with at least one of them, and uh, which makes it sound like I'm not friendly with the other one. I hate them! Um, but no, I, uh, I have a lot of people, a lot of friends in the, uh, the RKO Army. My friend Harley was over there meeting Meatloaf. I lean into the, the little tent, and I just look at him, and I go, I loved you in Americathon. <laughs> now, Americathon is this movie that came out in, I think, 1978, 1979, around there. It's narrated by George Carlin. The star of the movie is John Ritter. The premise of the movie is America's you know, in debt, and, and they're having a great big national 30-day telethon to raise the money to buy the country back. One of the acts in the telethon is this guy, Meatloaf, who is going to wrestle a car. <laughs> it was, yeah. So, I, like I said, I leaned in, and I said, I looked at Meatloaf, and I said, I loved you in America-thon. And his eyes just, like, went like saucers and then dropped. Yeah. And then he shook his head, and he went, wow. <laughs> he goes, I didn't come to Boston today thinking I was going to get my mind blown. But, yep, here we are. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Yep. Uh, I will say that, that Bad Out of Hell is a record that, no matter where I hear it, I will sing along to it, irrespective of song, crowd, location, or willingness of others to listen. That song gets sung. In fact, any song on this record is super singable if you are a car or shower singer. All right. So let's move on to... The Worst Song Ever. All right. So what is our contender this week for the worst song? Our, our contender this week falls into the category of people who were in super awesome bands that fell into a giant vat of adult contemporary and never really climbed back out again. Wait, we're not doing another Peter Cetera song, are we? No, no, this is not Peter Cetera. This guy's guy's a little less soulful than Peter (laughs) Cetera. So we're talking today about the song Dancing on the Ceiling by one-time Commodore, five-time Donnie Noso Simmons, Lionel Richie. <laughs> three times a lady. <laughs> That's right. He is three times. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Dancing on the Ceiling. This song was in heavy rotation on MTV so much, I still have nightmares where 
I feel like I'm walking around the ceiling and walls of my room to this song. Let's uh, let's play a clip. Okay. I really don't get music like this. I just, I just don't. We're not. We weren't the audience for this when this was popular, and we're not the audience for this now. Right. Um, the audience for this, this is long dead. This is like your friend's mom. Like you exactly. Like you had a friend that whose mom was like wicked young when she had your friend, right. and she likes this song. And she's hip. She likes to watch the MTV on the little TV in the yep. kitchen. And, you know, she listens to sometimes to the rock and roll station if you're both in the car at the same time. And She has old, a nicer Walkman than you do. She has a nicer Walkman than you do. She, you know, she goes to she goes to the to the aerobics class with some of her friends. To, the jazzercise to, classes. To, work, to, you know, to, to work off the uh, icebox cakes that they make and trade on weekends <laughs> and, and, and all that. And, you know, she, she likes that line of Richie because it's so funky. And she dances on that she, damn ceiling. She, she does dance on that damn ceiling. And she heard this song at her friend's baby grandbaby shower and loved it. The, the part that I don't get, like you brought up, like he was in the Commodores. He was in the Commodores. They, Saxophone player, like the funkiest of 70s funk bands that right. were popular, like, that had a lot of record sales. Right. They did Brick House, yep. for Christ's sake. Yep. yep. So when you hear, she's a brick. House. House. Yeah, that. That's Lionel Richie back there, bros. Yep, that's him. <laughs> yep. And he went from that to this. And and this was probably probably better for his career because he had a bunch of records that went that went to number one, number two, number ten, all, all in the top ten. Right. You know, during that run, and he was a staple on MTV for like three three or four years. Right, right, and right. He was he was one of the f- the first guys that sort of broke the color barrier, like right after Michael Jackson's record company forced MTV to to sort of play minority artists right guys that followed after michael jackson were like guys like lionel richie and billy ocean and whitney houston like artists who were able to to sort of come through that door and change the face of mtv he famously had that hello isn't me you're looking for a song and then he had that other one that was like half in spanish and half in english and i can't remember the name of that song probably because it's it's i want to say it was called fiesta but it may not be Kimambo, Fiesta, Forever. Yeah, forever yeah. All Night Long. That's the name of the song. Oh, oh yes. That, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That song actually has a little bit more soul than this song does. Not much. Not much. It's like, it's a it's a little bit more. Yeah, but that one had more like more a funk. Latino flavor to it. Yes. Where, you know, here's Lionel Richie, you know, coming out of the, the funk that was the Commodores. And to, well, I mean... You do what you want to do, I guess, but I don't know. It just seems it seems misplaced. That one's way more horn sectiony and yeah. and upbeat than than all of the sort of ballady. I think with um, I think with dancing on the is. ceiling. Honestly, well, that was the name of the album, so that was the title track. But to me, it sounded like the pyramid was built upside down. Like they started with an idea for the video. Hey, I got this idea how to make a cool video. And then they just wrote the song about it. Right. It's entirely possible. Like, you know, they may very well have been making videos the same way that Marvel Comics made comics. Like, just draw the Fantastic Four and we'll figure the words out later. Right. Yeah, it's entirely possible that because they were in such a visual medium at the time. I'm going to go on record. I don't think this song would have done half as well if it didn't have such a fun video to go along with it. It, This definitely benefits from the visual component. And since we don't have a visual component on the podcast. (laughs) Tying us all the way back to John F. Kennedy's the, the need for visual media. So, all right. That wraps up the show. We will see you guys next week. Say goodnight, Jeff. Goodnight, Jeff. Night, guys. See you guys. Bye, everybody. Bye. Special thanks to James Costa for our theme music. Find us or message us on Facebook and Instagram at Twibly or T-W-W-W-B-L-Y. Subscribe if you haven't already and tell your friends. They probably need a cool podcast to listen to as well. And if you don't like this week's episode, there'll be one next week and it'll probably be better. Yeah, I'm driven. Yeah, I'm driven.